Well, good morning. Glad that you are here today, and hopefully you're staying warm. Uh, we experienced something, if you've been around here very long, something called SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder. It's when it gets cold and it gets dark, and some of us are feeling that, uh, but I'm feeling sad as well. It's called Sports Affective Disorder. <laughs> it has been the most brutal week in the inland northwest that I can possibly remember, uh, a week ago today, uh, the Grizz lost the national championship game. The Seahawks did not make the playoffs. Monday, the Huskies lose. Tuesday, Pete Carroll gets fired. Wednesday, Thursday, our coach that took us to the championship game decides to go to Alabama, you know, of all places. The Gonzaga Bulldogs lost for the first time in like 13 years in the WCC that wasn't St. Mary's, you know, or BYU. I'm like, what is happening? I mean, the only solace that I had was that I won a few hands of Uno Attack in my family the week before. I mean, it's just, it's just like, oh, yes. You know, people told me, like, don't forget the Kraken. I'm like, it's hockey. Nobody cares about hockey, you know? Uh, the Lady Zags, that is something we can put our hope into. They're doing great. Lady Zags, thank you for holding. But man, what a brutal, brutal week. So in my sad, depressed state, I'm excited to be here with you guys. All right. Much more important things. Last week, uh, we looked at Revelation chapter 1, and we got a completely different picture of Jesus, didn't we? Uh, that is not from Lord of the Rings. That is actually from Revelation 1. In case you were not here last week, I would encourage you because that is a more, more accurate picture you know, of what we got of Jesus than the baby Jesus we just celebrated a few weeks ago. In addition, we talked about one of our identities in Christ, as Jay and, and Kenny mentioned, that we are now priests. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a priest of God and for God. For he says in Revelation 1.6, he has made us, all of us, followers of Christ, a kingdom of priests, for God and his Father. And what we talked about is that priests go to God on behalf of others. So we talked about that through prayer, through being a living sacrifice, worshiping God, which is why so many of you came early ready to worship our Lord. And then secondly, that priests go to others on behalf of God. So we get to share the message through word and deed that that's what we're here to do on this side of eternity. I'm gonna try to repeat that each week so it kind of becomes part of who we are in our identity in him. Now, with that being said, uh, I'm going to do like I did last week. So I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on. I want to give you some historical background and understanding before I go into the kind of the preaching moment and our time together. And I believe you can handle that. Uh, and I'll try not to go too fast. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. This is the first church uh, that we get a little picture of. Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So we're going to look at Ephesus today. Now remember, John is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor, also known as modern-day Turkey. And you can see where the seven churches are, and you can locate where Ephesus is, which is closest to a body of water, and that'll be important in a second. Because Ephesus was an incredibly world-famous city in the first century for cultural, economic, and the religious center of the Roman Empire. In fact, it's the most excavated ancient city, one of the most excavated ancient cities today. So you can walk down and it's almost like you're going into a time warp. And you're just like, I can't believe I am here. And these same buildings and the same structure is here for thousands of years because they've just excavated it so well. Now the harbor, as I mentioned, allowed them to be the richest, wealthiest Roman province in Asia. And it's important in the first century that, to know that 250,000 people, a little bit smaller than so it can, probably lived in this fourth largest city, only behind Rome, Alexandria, Syrian Antioch, and then there was Ephesus. 
Now, one of the things that made Ephesus so popular, in addition to the wealth that came through that area, was that they had the temple of Artemis in the Greek, also known as the temple of Diana in Rome. So Artemis and Diana are the same. And you can see, you know, that this is a, a rendering of the actual temple, you know, that was there. It was actually one of the seven most ancient wonders of the ancient world. So uh, this is still standing today. To give you an idea, it's just the front of what the temple would have been to Artemis or specifically to Diana. Now, Diana was a fertility goddess worshipped primarily through sex and sexuality of all kinds imaginable. I mean, anything was, was, was going, and this is the two pictures that we took, you know, that they would worship to or for. It was also known, Ephesus, as the as slave trade capital of the known world because it was right near the harbor. So this famous city also had a famous church. Paul started a church here and ministered in Ephesus for three years. Paul would go to these cities and he would always go by entering what's called the synagogues, the Jewish places of worship, and he would try to reason with them first because as a fellow Jew, he had great religious and a historical background to help convince the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, he was the person that they had been waiting for, and he would try to convince them. But inevitably, over time, uh, he would rile too many feathers and he would eventually get kicked out. So let me give you uh, the example of what happened in Acts chapter 19, verse 9. But some, he's talking about the Jewish leaders, became stubborn, rejecting Paul's message and publicly speaking against the way. Now, we were only called Christians years later. We were actually called people of the way. They didn't know what to call us uh, because they, we just kept talking about Jesus was the way. He was the truth. He was the life. No one gets the Father but by Jesus. And so they would call this cult, they would call them people of the way. That's what we were known for first. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, here's what's awesome. You can go to Ephesus and there it is. So Tyrannus, the lecture hall, is still there today. And it was so moving to stand there and going, oh my gosh, Paul lectured in this hall for over three years. And to know that the events in our Bible, once again, are accurate in history, in geography, as well as in spirituality. Other people that you might know from our Bibles that might be famous that came from Ephesus, you may or may not know, you know, were Aquila and Priscilla. Apollo served there. Onesimus was thought to have served there. Paul's close disciple and son of the faith, Timothy, worked there. Now, there was a really, really cool story in Acts 19, verses 23 to 41. And you can even read it while I'm talking because it has to do with what, how did Artemis and those people, how upset they got at Paul and how they raised the whole city of Ephesus in an uproar. And now that you know a little history, it kind of makes that whole scripture come alive. But I went over 10 minutes on Thursday, so I can't do that to you guys because the next service would hate me. So I'm gonna trust that you can read that on your own. Now, according to strong and consistent historical tradition, the apostle John also ministered there. Most of us don't know that. Uh, the guy who wrote John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and who wrote Revelation. John comes here and established himself as the sheep shepherd of the house churches in Ephesus shortly after the apostle Paul died in Rome in the 60s AD. 
Emperor Domitian, you might remember, uh, was in charge. And here's a picture of what Domitian would have looked like. And there's not many pictures of him, but there was one that was excavated, and that's a whole different story. John was then exiled to Patmos, and Domitian was assassinated in 96 AD. And according to church tradition, John comes back to Ephesus and either dies a natural death in 98 AD or during Emperor Trajan's reign. The reason that's important is because one of those moving experiences is if you go to Ephesus, you can actually visit John's grave. And so it's actually still there, and it's underneath you know, where this column is. You can see the grates kind of behind it, and you can actually peek down and see that it's historically accurate that he actually died there. And one other little tidbit, there's also a good case to be made that Mary, Jesus' mother, probably died in Ephesus as well. Because on the cross, John looks at, Jesus looks at John and says, here's your mother, You know, mom, here's your child. In other words, take care of each other. So Mary either died in Jerusalem, you know, or she may have died, you know, in Ephesus. We don't know, you know, for certain. Now, one thing that you need that I want to kind of point out, because it'll make a sense a few weeks from now, is the idea of adoption is very much important uh, to the, the, the book of Ephesians. Adoption is. Because at that time, uh, because slaves were so devalued, when they would have babies, many of them were aborted. Now, the way that they aborted the, the, the babies back then is that they just had them, and then they took them to the nearby woods, which surrounds Ephesus, and they would just throw them out there to die. But it was the Christians who at night sent out search parties on a regular basis, listening for cries, and they would take these kids and adopt them as their own, which showed the first century world a little different picture of the value of life and humanity, and it began to change the church and the city, began to change the city from the inside out. Now that you understand that background a little bit, let's go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter two, verse one, This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now, to the church in Ephesus in the Roman world, this is significant. We look at this like, that's kind of a weird introduction. And you can go back to chapter one to understand what some of those things mean. But I want to kind of give you a little bit more historical context. Domitian as well as the other emperors, you know, like the Caesars, consider themselves not only rulers, but gods. So when they had children, the children were sons of God. And so what Domitian did is to honor his son, he actually inscribed his son on the back of coins. And the son, as you can see on the right side, Domitian's on the left, the right side, is sitting on the world and has, guess what? Seven stars that is on this coin. And so what Jesus is saying that anybody who'd be reading this would understand is, yeah, Domitian thinks his son is the son of God, but I just want to remind you of the one and true king of kings and lord of lords, the one who holds the seven stars in his hands. So all of a sudden, it brings whole new meaning. So every time that they would take a coin, they would look at it, (laughs) Jesus. They would not recognize, and they would say, so it's intentional that Jesus is actually writing this to this church and this this at this season. So I just love that, kind of nerded out on that. Uh, Verse two. I know all the things that you do. Now, the phrase I know is found in each of the messages that Jesus gives. That word I know is omniscient, which means that he is all-knowing. Jesus knows, and he sees everything. That should make some of us a little nervous. And at the same time, he loves us anyway. That should make us more 
excited. That in our own shame, when we're trying to hide things from other people, and we're trying to go through life, that Jesus sees it. He sees all. And he says, you know what? I, I still love you anyway. I still love you in spite of that. And so he knows what's going on. And so when he knows what's going on, he has some words that he wants to share to these people. And as we learned in chapter one, not just to the church at Ephesus, but also for churches to read and people to understand for all eternity. Revelation two, verse two, Jesus says, I have seen, there it is, your hard work and your patient endurance. That word patience is the Greek word that means steadfast, to be steadfast, consistent. In this sense, Jesus is saying, Ephesus, you are rock solid. Well done. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. Now, when we read that, I know that immediately you're thinking of who are evil people. Remember, he's talking to the church. Here's the evil people that he's referring to. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. That's the evil people he's referring to. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. The reason I need to mention that to you is because sometimes we like to divide good, evil, like we're good, world, evil. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's pointing to people in the church and saying, this is what makes a person evil, someone who's taking my words and distorting them or making them something that they're not. Now, Ephesus, this church, was warned about this by Paul. He says, be careful. In fact, in uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, this is what Paul says as a warning to this church. So guard yourselves and God's people, feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. And so he gives them that warning upon leaving and Jesus commends them for being successful and not letting these people come in to distort the truth which is encouragement for these people to be able to read and to hear. Now, a little later on, John also writes one more important message from Jesus. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Now, these Nicolaitans sought to teach the church something other than the truth. We don't know if they added something or took something away. We do know that Jesus references them twice in this chapter. He references them again in verse 15. And because of time today, we'll talk more about who these people were next week. So, so Jesus is looking and saying, hey, you're doing well. You're following my word. You're enduring a difficult season where it would be so easy based on what culture is presenting and the allureness of the religious places like Domitian's temple or Artemis, you know, Diana's temple or the economic, you know, the throngs that are going on and the prosperity that could be all be yours or slave treatment. You can do all of those things and you're holding on to my word. Well done. But Jesus isn't done. Verse four, he says, but I have this complaint against you. Now, this is not what we usually like to hear from Jesus, and it's not usually something that we want to receive from Jesus. When somebody comes, I want you to just think of your own, own life as now we transition from teaching to a little bit more preaching. When someone comes in your life to offer correction, how do you hear it? Uh, many of us uh, hear it as criticism, not correction. Uh, some of us, based on our family of origin, might hear it as condemnation. Instead of, hey, here's something that you're doing bad, we interpret, I am bad. 
I have to do this you know, with my kids. You know, I'm just bad. I'm like, no, no, no. What you did was bad, but it doesn't define you. But we need to grow and learn for that. Uh, for some of you who've grown up in churches, you've had bad church experiences where you start feeling shame, start feeling like, ooh, some of those feelings or relationships that you had with you know, a father, you had with a pastor, you had with somebody else. And so it's hard for you to hear correction. But I need you to know that Jesus, if he's going to love us as a good father would a son, he actually is going to bring correction in our lives for our benefit. And he does this with almost every single church. Don't forget Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. There's a lot of times like, nope, I give up then. If I'm not doing everything perfect, then I give up. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. So now Jesus is gonna say, here's some things you're doing really well, but here's what I have against you. Here's the correction that I need you to make for your sake and for our relationship's sake. And it's not just the Ephesian church. It's for us now. So here's how we can tune in. Here's what he says. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. You don't love me or each other as you did at first, which is interesting because of all the things that they are doing for him. But I started to think, what are characteristics, attitudes, and behaviors uh, of when you first love something or someone? Uh, if you start thinking about, let's start with the something. Think of a new car. Now, it doesn't have to be brand new, just new to you. You know how you treat those new cars, right? Some of you get the car wash a month, you know, uh, unlimited plan, because you're like, I just want to keep it so clean all the time. I mean, you're vacuuming it on a regular basis. You're taking Windex inside and out. You're making sure that this thing is clean. You don't let anybody bring food, drink, or any of that kind of stuff, because this car is going to be clean, you ain't gonna let kids mess this thing up. You even make them take off their shoes before they get into your car. That's how much you value this car. I remember when I got my uh, new used car you know, as well, and I was like, nope, nobody's eating in this thing. Nobody's eating this thing. And then we were on a trip with the kids. And uh, my wife said, uh, the kids are hungry. I'm like, they'll be fine. She goes, no, they need to eat. And, and I was like, well, let's stop and get them something to eat. She goes, but we're running out of time. So we had to go through a drive-through. And I was like, oh no, this is not a good idea. So we went through Wendy's and it's almost like the Lord wanted to teach me a little lesson because uh, the guy forgot to seal the top of the lid of the cup to which I grabbed and it was like a squishy cup for some reason. And I did not know that amount of liquid would come in a small drink because it went all over me, all over the dash, all over everything in the car. And I'm like, there goes the resale value. My wife just kind of snickers a little bit. And I'm like, well, forget it now, you know, eat away, kids. Here's fries, you know, and just like, you know, <laughs> at some point it goes from, yeah, we're kind of taking care of this thing to it just becomes a mode of transportation, right? For, for most new vehicles. Uh, now, it's not just things, it's people too, or your second favorite thing. How about your new pet? How about a new puppy? Yes, who doesn't like puppies? And the whole family, if you ever had kids, oh yes, we'll take care of the puppy. We love puppies. And we all get suckered into the puppy phase. And, and the kids are like, I'll be the one to feed. No, I want to feed. I'm going to walk them. No, it's my turn to play with them. No, I'll be willing to pick up the poop. No, I'm going to pick up the poop. And you have all this that lasts about a week. And then all of a sudden, uh, 
It's like, hey, where'd the kids go? Where's the, the people we're gonna take care of and feed and that kind of stuff? Oh, we still love the benefits of the dog. We just don't wanna do anything that relates to actually taking care of the dog. It's almost like when the excitement goes down, so does the commitment. How about a new friendship or romantic interest? Think of that. Think about the last time that you got a new friend or a romantic entrance, and you just couldn't wait to be in their presence, and time just flew by. You can't realize, like, I can't believe how much you connect and depend on your generation. Maybe you snap, text, call, Instagram, social media, Twitter, or you did something crazy like face-to-face, you know, and you did that for several hours. I'm North Carolina. Just, it was amazing how much time just went by, and you'd rearrange your schedules to want to be with that person on a regular basis. You would go out to eat. You would do experiences. You wouldn't think about how much it costs because you just wanted to be in that person's presence on a regular basis. So again, Jesus says, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. So he's correcting their lack of love of God and other people. What he's doing is he's reinforcing, let's get back to the main thing being the main thing. He says, remember, you must love the Lord your God from Jesus' own words, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally as important to love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So I want you to do some self-reflection. I want you to evaluate your relationship with God and other people based on love. Now, love is not just a feeling. We know that. Just because the excitement or the honeymoon phase you know, can go away, you can still have a deep-seated commitment to the person, to the God in which we serve, the passion, the commitment. But over time, there is a tendency for all things, all people, and yes, our relationship with God, for the love to become secondary to the things that we actually do for God. Let me, let me personify it a little more. In marriage, and I know this is gonna be complete generalities, I don't need emails, it just helps me with this. In marriage, allow me some generalities to say, often men tend to focus on their work to provide for instead of the person to which they are providing for. Under this idea, like, wait a minute, I'm providing for this family. And you're like, but we want the person more than the provision. But somehow that can get twisted. Ladies, and again, this is a generality. How many moms have a tendency to focus on the kids and not the one who helped bring the kids into the world? So that when the kids leave, they look at each other and realize, I don't know if I love you anymore or even know you because the focus wasn't here. The focus was here. And we lose that. The same thing can happen when it comes to God. How often do we just go through the motions at a certain point? That all of a sudden we're like, yep, check the box. I am at church. I go to group. I serve. I give. But we're forgetting who we're doing it for. I can tell you as pastors, it's a huge temptation. You know, for me to speak the words of God, to proclaim the message of Jesus, but not build the relationship with God. It's easy for us to do this. And here's what's even more fascinating. The actions may look the same on the outside, but the motivation is different. Two people can be serving, doing the exact same job at a church. One person does it out of guilt and obligation. The other person does it as an overflow and gratitude for their Savior and Lord. Both people look like they're doing the same things. The Ephesian church was killing it. You think about what they were doing? What do you mean we don't love you? 
We are suffering in your name. We are holding tight to the word of God because it's all about the word of God and we're elevating the word of God above all things. We've protected the word. We have got out these evil people. We are teaching right doctrine. And Jesus is looking at them and says, yeah, but you forgot the person that you're teaching about. And we can do that in our churches even today by focusing on the things instead of the person. And we can do that in relationship with other people. So how does he correct them further? He doesn't just leave them there. He says, here's how you, how you correct this. Recognize, look how far you've fallen. Look how far you've fallen, Jesus says. The first step is to stop and look at you where you are versus where you used to be. Do you remember when you first came to Christ? And for those of you who grew up in the church, uh, when Christ became real for something that you did, do you remember what you, what you did? Do you remember the passion? Do you remember the excitement? Do you remember the love you know, that you had for Jesus, where is that today? See, when the prodigal son had left the father, he looked back while he was in a pig pen to say, wait a minute, it's way better there. He had to look back to where he was so that he could correct where he is so we could move forward with where God is. So Jesus goes on to say, turn back to me and do the works, which is an interesting phrase, do the works you did at first. So he's saying, repent. That's what the word is. Turn back, repent. So it says, and do the works of love that you first did. This means going back to the basics, to the very things you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. These things we never should grow beyond. So what are these first works? Because now it sounds like a work-oriented religion. It's not. Let me give you an example in marriage. I would encourage some of you, when you get married and you have kids and life gets busy, guess what? Start dating again. Like, what? We're too busy. We got kids. We got at work. We got all these other things. Yeah, but do you remember what you used to do? You were in proximity with one another. The kids were secondary. You guys were first and you built in. You made time for one another. Yeah, Dan, that's a work. It is a work, but it's a work that helps establish relationship. And it's the same thing with God. So, what are these first works that he could be learning, alluding to? Remember how you used to spend time in the Word. That would be one of the things. Do you remember, you know, your desire to go back to the word, to understand who Jesus is, knowing you were connecting not to words on a page, but the God who wrote those words and to pause and reflect, not just write a check mark. Remember how you used to pray would be one of those things that you prayed in fervency and passion and conviction that when you prayed, you believed your prayers were going to be answered because of the God in which you served. Remember the joy and getting together with other Christians to worship, to hear the word and be in relationship, talking about Jesus. Remember the excitement. You just couldn't help. You're like, I can't wait to come to group. I can't wait to come to church. I can't wait to worship God and how easy it becomes routine and rote. Remember how excited you were about telling others about Jesus because it has such changed your life. You're like, I have to share it with other people. Remember how much you loved others. In a day and age, in a country in 2024 that's going to do everything to try to divide you in your own family, politically, economically, socially, and otherwise, that you don't look at the differences, but you look at here's the similarities, here's how much I still love these people, that's a different way to look at things. Because Jesus gives us a little warning. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Wow consequence of not returning back to the love, even though they're suffering for Jesus and holding up God's word for Jesus and patiently enduring these things for Jesus is losing the blessing of Jesus is what he's talking about. 
Unless they repent, he will remove their light and his presence. And let me be honest with you. The presence of Jesus leaves first well before the people in the church recognize that he's gone. If you study churches just across the world that's ever existed, churches stop focusing on the main things, the mission, the vision, the love, the relationships with one another, and they focus on other things, and all of a sudden the church starts getting so inward focused and so non-effective, and then it starts getting less and less and less until one day, poof, it's gone. It's gone. And you're like, what happened to that church? Well, years before it would actually was gone, Jesus had left the building a long time ago because it was no longer about Jesus. It was about other things, other things that they thought was so important to uphold, so important to, to stand up or against, you know, whatever it may be in the culture, whatever it may be, according to what God's word said. And they just said, we're gonna, we're gonna hold on to this. And Jesus is saying, yes, hold on to those things, but don't forget to hold on to me. And so we've got to make sure we stay grounded in him. And then he says this, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. I know he's writing to Ephesus, but he's reminding us, this is for all of us, to everyone who's victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. What a weird statement. Because the only tree of life that we would know if you read the Bible, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. Right? There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The knowledge of good and evil is what Adam and Eve ate. Their eyes were open. Sin entered the world. God kicks them out of the garden because he doesn't want them to eat from the tree of life, which allows them to live forever. And so you're like, of all things to say, Jesus, why would you say that until you understand that Jesus' promises of eternal life as we remain true to him, but it has greater cultural meaning? This is what's just, it might blow some of your minds. The temple of Artemis, right? One of the seven most ancient wonders of the ancient world was actually built on the site of an ancient tree shrine. It was a date palm tree. That place was known as a place of refuge, a place of salvation, a place of paradise. There were even coins in Ephesus that had a date palm tree representing their tree of life and salvation stamped on it. So what Jesus is doing to the readers in that first century is giving them a promise beside that sacred tree that all of you know about this temple of Artemis and what everybody's proclaiming. I want you to be reminded that there is a tree, a true tree of life that provides true salvation for anyone who holds strong to the end. As overcomers, you will have the right to eat from the real tree of life. Don't be fooled by the counterfeit that's being peddled into the world. That's a cool kind of a little, little tidbit for those who are reading that century. So I started asking, started thinking, what is our modern day tree? What is our tree of life? And it hit me. It's the cross. The cross is our picture of eternal life. The cross is our picture of paradise we get to go to. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we are being saved. No, it is the very power of God. In the presence of God and his newly created paradise, the cross provides salvation for anyone who's willing to repent, to turn from his or her ways, and to follow Jesus. So as we kick off 2024, may we continue to be a people who love God, who love his word, because that's what he's affirming. We don't want to not love his word, but also love his people. May that be who we're known for. Valley Real Life, that's my heart for this place. If we were gonna be known for anything, 
to one another, anything outside these church that they would say, you know, those people love well. They love their God, even though I don't believe in it. And they love one another differently than the way the world loves. Look at how much they care for one another. And I believe we're doing that. We just need to be reminded to continue to make the main things the main things. But it starts with you. Where is your love for God? You going through the motions? You find yourself checking the box? You want to go back? Because you can. It starts today to turn back to our first love. For some of you, maybe the only reason you were here today is to hear the importance of loving your spouse, to returning back to that. Remember why you got married in the first place. What is your next step in loving God and others this year? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. This is your day. We love you and thank you. And I pray, Father, you would just lead whatever decision we need to make when it comes to you. Help us to get back to the works that created the love environments for us to connect to you and others. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we close, if if you wanna put your trust or faith in Jesus into what he did on that cross, I wanna encourage you to head to our cross and people would love to pray for you and talk to you about that decision. Maybe for you it's to pray. Just you need somebody to pray for you, whatever's going on in your life. We wanna be there for you. Or maybe it's to be baptized in him. But may love rule the day. May love be the center of our hearts and our connection with him and with other people. Will you stand with me as we sing the song of commitment together?